How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Let's see your hands. Yeah? We got, we got a few. Boy, we got a whole lot of people like me here, here, here. I've always refused to make New Year's resolutions. I hate them. In fact, it was really a big stretch for me to even have any kind of New Year's resolution as a topic for today's message because I just hate the idea of doing that the first Sunday of the year. So, sorry, we've got a little bit of a close topic to that today. Uh, you know, part of the reason I hate New Year's resolutions is because when I grew up, I always saw people making them and they'd never fulfill them. And, and, and the reality, the big push of it for me is most of the New Year's resolutions I hear are made out of the things we feel bad about ourselves. They're, I feel really ugly and therefore I have to lose weight. I feel really guilty because for some reason I'm not doing spiritual disciplines as the way, the way I think I should and therefore I have to set some sort of a goal and, and, and so all of our New Year's resolutions come out of our guilt and our, our pain and our, and, and you know, the reality is that for a lot of us, when we're going to talk today about dreaming God's dreams, and the reality is I think for many of us that, that we dream all too often out of our pain. And sometimes that turns out to be really good. Some of us end up having these great big dreams that solve that same pain in other people. But a lot of times, that dream is probably a little bit like one of the characters we're going to look at today named Gideon in the Old Testament, who, you know, he's the least of the, clan, of the clans in, the, in this tribe, and he's from the least of the families, and he's the least in his family. And we find him in, we find him as the story begins in, in a time in Israel when, when they had abandoned God and God had removed his, his hand of protection and hand of blessing and the Midianites were raiding them every time harvest came around and, and taking all their food and leaving them starving, leaving them destitute. And it was really, really a rough time. And Gideon, this, this least of all people ends up one day in this, in this threshing, threshing grain in, in, in not, not, a threshing grain floor like they did or a place out in the field they did. They were hiding him in a wine press to try to keep him away from the Midianites. And, and this guy has a complex. And it's probably a complex in some ways uh, well-deserved. You know, he's probably in a culture that, that, that values manliness and values great warriors and values strength and values ingenuity. He is the least of the least of the least and he's probably a misfit for his culture and his age. And he's dreaming out of his dreams and out of his pain, trying to just survive, trying to hide, trying to get enough food. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But, but uh, you know, we do the same thing. A lot of our dreams are, are dreams from things in our life that we said, I don't ever want to be like that, or I want to be like this because this person hurt me. And, and a lot of times when we dream, we're dreaming out of that pain. And that pain limits us. And, and we say, oh, God, I can dream this high, but not any higher. And because it's all about us. Just like our resolutions are all about how bad we are, how, how misfit we are. So often our dreams are that same way. And the reality is that, that God, we want to dream His dream because when God thinks of us, He doesn't think of us that way. He doesn't see us as we are. He dreams out of the significance that He created us for. And we know from the Bible that His original creation, even though corrupted by sin, His original creation of us was very, very good. And He still promises promises us good works that are beyond what we can imagine. 
And that's how he thinks of us. Yet even if we start thinking about dreaming, maybe, and give ourselves permission to dream that way and think about how God views us and, and that potential, that, that goodness, that, and we start trying to reframe our basis of dreaming, it's still, we end up coming back to this question, who are we to dream a God dream? And, and what does it mean for me sitting in my cubicle crunching numbers? Or what does it mean for me at home changing diapers or doing laundry? Or, or what does it mean for me just trying to make a sale to dream a God dream? How, how does that feel? fit where does that go and 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 does god really speak that clearly to me for me to know that you know today's message is going to be a little bit different in fact i did i did supply this for you although if you have a bible you may just want to open it up to proverbs 16 we're going to spend some time there and you may want to take notes there the little portion at the bottom don't worry about that we're going to summarize that at the end of the message so don't be sitting there throughout the whole message trying to figure out when do I fill in the blanks? You'll know when. Okay, don't worry. Don't worry. But the purpose of the me- today's message is a little bit different. I have, I have one takeaway I want you to do, and then we're going to be all over the map around that takeaway, okay? The one takeaway is I want you to take some time this month, whether it's 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes a week or, or an hour once this month, I want you to take some time to just sit back and ask God, help me to dream your dream. Okay? And you've got the entire takeaway of the message. Now the rest of the message is going to be, we're just going to look at some scriptures, and it's a little bit more of a devotional approach. We're going to, we're going to hit a bunch of different thoughts, and I want you to think about which of these thoughts apply to me, because, because my hope is that you'll walk away from today, and you'll maybe go back and look more and meditate more, or ponder more Proverbs 16, or, or the story of Gideon in, in, in Judges 6 through 8, and you'll spend some more time there, because we're, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. I'm trying to give you kind of a devotional framework in a sense today to help you dream God's dream. Okay, fair enough? Okay, so we're going to start by looking at Proverbs, and, the, and I kind of refer to this as a Proverbs sandwich because, because we start in verse 1 and, and, and then we end in verse 9, and even though, even though the passage kind of extends beyond there, 10 through 15 kind of take the whole thought there and extend it, Verse 1 and verse 9 of Proverbs 16 kind of form the top and the bottom layers of this sandwich. And, and that's actually, if you haven't read Proverbs a lot, that's actually a real common thing in Proverbs. Except usually in Proverbs, it's found in one verse. You have one verse here that it says says the, the truth one way, and then maybe it says the opposite, or it says it a different way. And it just kind of, that's a real common thing in Proverbs. And a lot of times in Proverbs, you have one verse at a time, and then the next verse is completely disconnected. Or, or maybe once in a while you'll run into a story that's like four or five verses where it's actually, it's actually almost told from the standpoint of Solomon looking out a window and seeing something happen and, 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 and deriving wisdom from it. And every now and then in Proverbs as well, you'll find maybe a chapter here that's centered around a theme like Proverbs 31, centered around women and, and, and godly women, and, but it kind of takes a pot shot from all over and it's not necessarily a flow. This is a really interesting passage because I can imagine that we're going to deal with today in Proverbs 16 because I can imagine Solomon sitting in his court or sitting on a step of his of his palace with his arm around his son tutoring him and saying son this is this is the best wisdom I've gained in all the years 
on what planning and dreaming God's dream, planning to live God's dream is all about. Or I could see him sitting in his court with the Queen of Sheba or the, or the, or the great people from all over the world that came to him because, Proverbs, because Solomon was viewed at that day as the wisest man on earth and as one of the wisest people throughout all history. And I could see nobles and wise men coming to him and saying, how do you get so much done? How do you find God's blessing and succeed so well in life? How do you dream God's dream? And these verses are really the, the bullet points of Solomon's wisdom. And it starts out with the idea and, and ends in verse 9 as well with the idea that to man belong the plans or the dreams that we pursue of the heart. And, it, and it's this whole idea that our dreams start in our heart. And all of us, all of us have these emotions, these ideas, these things that we grew up with that we want our life to be like, right? We, we dreamed of us being X by the time we were 30 or some of you aren't 30, so you're still dreaming that, sorry. You know, we had these ideas of what our family would look like and, and we had our ideas of what our career would look like and how we'd be positioned or what kind of a house we'd have and, and what kind of a neighborhood we'd have and what kind of friends we have. And, and, you know, a lot of times the greatest pain in life is the fact that some of those dreams didn't come true. You know, some of us have been divorced and we never dreamed that dream. Nobody dreams that dream. Some of us have had a harder time economically than we would have ever dreamed, but, but, but yet we've all dreamed. In Proverbs 16.1 and 16.9, the bookends or the top and bottom layers of our sandwich say this, To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. And 16.9 says it just a little bit different. In his heart a man plans his course, he plans to live his dream, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, what's this saying? You know, it, it, it's acknowledging this fact that all of us have these dreams. All of us long for these things. We all, even if we're, even if we're a Gideon who we're not sure we can dream big, we still dream. We still have an idea of what we want our life to be, and we have all these images, but, but these bookends teach us that the starting and the ending point of all dreaming is Him. It's God. We can think all about, we can, we can confess positively all the things we want over our life, but, but what this verse is saying in verse 1 is saying, we can dream all we want, but, but God's the one who says, this is the plan for your life. These are the good works I've prepared in advance for you to do. This is how I created you, and this is what I want you to accomplish. And, and we can plan all we want, and we can start walking down a course, but the reality is, in the end, God is the one who shapes the terrain of what we walk over, and He orchestrates our life to get us where He wants to get us. Now, that brings up some really tough questions. That brings up a hornet's nest of some, some emotions probably for some of us because, because what about all this pain? What about all these things that have gone wrong? What about all these difficult things we've faced? And, and we're not going to have time to deal with that all today. We're going to deal a little bit and try to wrestle with those things through the tough question series that we start next week. But, but here, let's back up from that again because here's the comforting side of those statements, the side that I rely on a lot in my life. You know, the fact of the matter is God recognizes our dreams maybe all over the place. Even if we're in the right ballpark, 
We may think we're supposed to be in left field and he may want us on the pitcher's mound or in the bullpen or at first base. We may not even be in the right place. God recognizes that the dreams we have, it's not, we're not always going to be completely in sync with him because our, our dreams are going to go all over the place. But, but here's the assurance and here's the comfort. He says it doesn't really matter because I can get you where you need to be and I'm going to get you where you need to be. I'm the one who determines the steps. I'm the one who directs your steps. I'm the one who forms the terrain. You see, the great hope of this is that we don't have to live life worrying so much about are we getting it right and are we dreaming God's dream? We just, and the second guessing our decisions and sometimes sitting back going, I can't figure it out, so I'm not going to do anything until I figure it out. We don't have to spend our life worrying about that. He takes that worry right off the table. And verse 2 goes on and says this. It says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Solomon, this is really profound. He's settled something in his heart that all of us need to settle. He settled the fact that all of us when we dream, all of us when we plan, we think we're right. Right? We think we're innocent. We think we're doing it for the right motives. We think it's all good. There's very few people who dream and plan and make a plan to improve their life and don't think it's the best thing for them to do. Don't think it's a good thing to do. But Solomon has settled an issue in his heart that that even though we plan and we think we're right and we think we're innocent in our motives, reality is we may not be. We may be wrong. We may be completely out of the ballpark in God's plans. But here's the point. He settled this issue. And until we settle this issue, we cannot discover God's dream without a lot more difficulty than we need. We can't be great leaders of our family, great leaders in our business, unless we've settled this issue that we, even if we make a decision with a clear conscience, we might be wrong. Now, now that's almost trite to say because all of us here would probably say, well, of course. I agree I might be wrong, but here's the rub. Here's how we know we've settled this or not because we'll all assent to the truth. This is one of those things we'll all say, of course I could be wrong. But here's how we know whether we've really settled this truth, whether we've really settled it before God that I'm doing this with a clear conscience, but I could be wrong. When you get pushback from someone, how does it affect your relationship? When someone attacks you saying, you're wrong, you did this from impure motives, you did this for the wrong reasons, do you stay free within yourself and at peace within yourself, able to look at that and say, I already settled that issue. Yeah, I might be. And be able to listen without defensiveness and and either, either from an aspect of freedom and peace, continue on your course because you still believe that you did it right and you're doing it for the right reasons, or to just freely say, forgive me, I'm wrong, and I'm changing course. Are you free to make that without having to break relationship or hold people off or feel a ton of anxiety? If we're not free, then we really haven't settled this issue. We still think we're right, And we're not really ready to settle the fact that we may be wrong. 
And Solomon says, you know, so you go through life and, and you dream and you dream and you dream and God's the one who determines the dreams and God's the one who directs your steps and, and you do it because you think you have a clear conscience, because you think you're right and, 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 and realizing you may not even be in the same right ballpark. Unless you settle this issue, it'll be hard to follow my dream. And he says it really doesn't matter. He goes on in the next verse and says, uh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 3, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. So he moves on from this clear conscience to commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. And this, this commit, this verse is an interesting verse because I think initially if you react to it the way I do, the, the reaction is, okay, so God, I, I've, made this, I've made this decision the best I can. I've committed it to you. I'm trying to do it for the right reasons. I believe I'm innocent in my, in my re- reasons for doing this. I believe I have a clear conscience. Okay, so I've committed it to you, so even if I'm wrong, you're going to create success. And there's this element of truth to that, but this word commi- that, that's translated commit here is this really interesting word in Hebrew. It's just a very colorful word. It, it, had, it, can, it can take on a couple different connotations. And one of them is, is to roll over on. It's actually kind of this word that means to roll over on. And, and it's literally like as though I take a heavy burden and transfer it from my back to someone else. This is part of committing to God and saying, God, the burden of success, the burden of whether this succeeds or fails, I can't carry that. It's got to be you. I got to give it to you, I, I, and so I, I just can't carry the burden of that. And that's one of the things that keeps us from planning and dreaming sometimes, is because we go, "This dream is too big for me. I, I, I can't carry that." So Solomon goes and says, "You know, dream God's dream, be innocent, be clear, but give the pressure to Him, and and don't worry about it." Because in verse four it says. The Lord works out everything for his own ends. We can relieve that burden. We can trust God as we commit our way to him because he works out everything for his own ends. He's just reinforcing what the, what the top and the bottom verses of the sandwich say. We don't have to be people of high worry. We don't have to go around going, how can, I, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure God spoke to you? How can I know that this is God and not just me? How can I know that I really am doing this for the right reason? It's not really just selfish because I want this recognition or I want this honor or I want this promotion. And we don't have to be people of high worry who just sit back paralyzed from doing anything saying, unless I'm sure it's God, I can't act. Instead, he says, just do things with a clear conscience. Commit your way to the Lord and act. But there's a a flip side to this word. One of the other word pictures behind this word that's translated commit could also be translated to wallow. Now, when I say to wallow, uh, the most immediate memory comes back from Shrek Forever, which we watched with the kids over the holiday season. And you you see the ogres in the mud pond making angels in the mud, right? And we've all seen pictures of, of you know, pigs wallowing in the mud and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and the question here for me, and I think the wisdom of this, the use of this word is, when's the last time you took time to wallow? When's the last time you took time to actually sit back and dream God's dreams? 
Because, yeah, we go through life and we do things with a clear conscience and we roll and commit the burden of success to him because we can't carry it. But there's also this element of this word that says, take time to wallow so that's not even your dream from the beginning. And it's just this interesting dynamic because it would be so easy for us to just sit back and do nothing and wallow and wait for God's dreams. But, it, but this word and this committing thing uh, in the context has both the idea, just commit the success to him and act, but schedule regular times in your life to wallow, to listen, to dream God's dream, to take a step back and and see what he wants to say to you. It's both. It's, it's not just sitting there waiting. It's just plan to wait and then act with the best you know. Don't sit back. Verse 4 goes on. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. And, and then verse 5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And, and it's interesting because Solomon's reading our minds here. If you go through this process and you start dreaming and you say, all I have to do is be innocent in my motives to do this and God will bless me. All I have to do is lay the weight of success on Him and He will give success and He'll lead me and take me where I need to go. The first question that comes to mind for many of us is, well, what about this person? They don't even follow God and and they don't even do things from an innocent heart. And God's giving them success. And, and we immediately start comparing ourselves to others and, and comparing ourselves to situations that we, that we don't agree with and go, well, why does they have success? If this is the secret formula for success, then why do they have success? And Solomon comes immediately back and answers that and says, God is just. He prepares, he, he works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. His judgment is sure, it may not be on our own time frame. But he will be just. But you see, when we don't see that, we start to become proud. Or we start to become judgmental. We start to say, I'm doing this with an innocent heart and they're not. God, you should bless me more. Or, or maybe we start to say, hey, if I'm doing this with an innocent heart and I'm not getting as much success with him, then I'm going to do it on my own way and I'm just going to do what I want. And either way leads to pride. And so Solomon confronts both that. Leave the justice to God and, and, and then reinforcing that God detests the proud of heart. And be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Because when we start looking at other people and start judging their motives or start judging their dreams or start comparing our dream to their dream, we end up in pride and we lose our innocence. We lose what he told us to do in verse 2, to do things from an innocent, clear conscience. And we start judging other people instead. Comparison in dreams and plans and comparison when success looks like for you or for others is sure to lead to pride. And then Solomon in verse 6 returns to this theme of our concern. What if we're wrong? What if we're not even in the right ballpark? What if we haven't heard you right, God? What about that? And verse 6 says, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. He takes us back from worry and comparison and judgment and pride to comfort and forgiveness and assurance. Hey, who's faithful? Who loves us? It's Jesus, right? 
He came and He died for us. He shed His blood for us. He gave His life for us. He lived with us. He came to us to be the ultimate example of faithfulness to us. And it says here that faithfulness and love atone for sin. And Jesus, uh, and, Paul, and Paul refers to this in Jesus in character towards us in 2 Timothy 2.13 where he says, if we're faithless, He will remain faithful for He cannot disown Himself. See, the reality is when we come to Christ like people who declared their faith in Him through baptism, that He becomes a part of us. He lives in us. He lives with us. He cannot disown Himself. He will remain faithful to us and forgive us when we make an innocent decision, even when we don't make an innocent decision, to try to follow a dream. He's faithful to get us where He wants us to be. And when our time comes where our motives are weighed, and if our motives are found lacking, even though we thought they were innocent, if our motives are found lacking, He's faithful and He forgives. And the amazing thing is, too, if we've really settled this issue we talked about before of our innocence, but maybe not being innocent, it allows us to receive that correction so much more easily for us to be faithful, for us to repent, for us to respond instead of getting caught up in this, in this idea that we have to stay guilty, we have to pay a penance for several weeks or months or years, or, or we have to atone for this and we have to make everything 100% right, which we should try to make things right, but you know what? We need to try to make things right from the standpoint of a forgiven state, not trying to, not trying to absolve ourselves of sin and guilt. And the very fact if we've settled this issue of innocence allows us to respond with a greater faithfulness more quickly to Him when our motives are indeed found lacking. And then here's a promise. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, and kind of the translation of this statement could be when we have these attitudes Solomon is talking about, when we plan our life and act in this manner, we're pleasing to God. So when our ways are pleasing to the Lord, He makes even His enemies, even our enemies, live at peace with with us. It's an amazing peace He wants to give us in this whole idea of dreaming, living the dream that He's got for our lives. And one final warning about temptation and planning that Solomon gives us in verse 8. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Now, We all in our American culture are so prone to dreaming all the time, every place, that bigger is better. And we push ourselves and push ourselves and push ourselves to make more, to grow more, to make our company bigger, to do all this stuff. And and the reality is that God does want us to have success. He talks about us wanting to have success. And and, and in church, in our life, in our relationship with God, He talks so much about wanting to save the entire world, to rescue the entire world from the pain that's hurting. He does want us to grow. All of that requires growth. But, But here's the reality. Sometimes we push ourselves so hard that we end up living life at a frenetic pace. And we want more so much that we can't even practice habits that help us stay righteous. We can't practice habits of, of being a good dad or a good mom or, or we can't back off and have times to, to wallow in God's dream because we push so hard for more that we don't leave any margin in our life to live life the way God wants us to live it. 
You see, we need to trust God for our promotions. We need to trust God to grow our businesses. We need to trust God and let him do it on his time frame because it says here, better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. And yeah, we don't mean to be unjust, but you know what? The reality is when we push ourselves so hard and don't leave any margin, we are more tempted to be unjust. We are more tempted to be angry. We are more tempted to make unwise decisions than when we allow ourselves to have the margin, the time in our life to seek God, to lay the burden on Him, to let it be His, to live life from a place of peace rather than from a a frenetic need to to be bigger and to be better and to, to grow faster. You know, sometimes we have a hard time dreaming as well just simply because because maybe maybe we don't know if God's ever spoken to us. We're not really sure if God's spoken to us. And 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 we we just wrestle with that. Or or maybe he's spoken to us, but it just seems like there's a lot of time and a lot of decisions and a lot of dreams that go on between the times where we're really sure God's spoken to us. And that's really not that unlike Gideon. You know, Gideon, we only have a record of him of God speaking profoundly to him about purpose and about his dream for him in a couple couple places. And and when he comes to him, he says this. He says in Judges six through eight. Starting in verse 12 of of 6, he says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said to the Lord, He said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But, sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon said, How can I save Israel? My, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Basically, he's saying, Yeah, right. I'm hiding in a wine press. I've been made fun of my whole life because I'm the least of everybody. And you think I'm a mighty warrior? That's what you call me? And so often in our life, each of us, each one of us thinks, you know what? God can't use me. What can God do with me? I've messed up so much. I'm so busy with my life and doing this stuff. How can I find time to do something for God when I just try to hold my family and my work together? And can God even really use me? But again, while we dream and think about ourselves so often out of our disappointment, our pain, our frustration, the limits that we think we have on ourselves, the incapability we have, our failures of the past, God's thinking an entirely different way about us. He's thinking about this potential, this significance that he created created us for. And God's in the business of choosing unlikely people. And the reality is all of us are unlikely people to be chosen to do something great for God. But God affirms that he's with Gideon. And this is what he says to Gideon, and I think he says to all of us as well. This is just, I think this is a profoundly simple phrase. God just says, just use the strength you have. That's all I ask. Just use the strength you have. Use the brains you have. Use... Use the strength you have. Use the emotional strength you have. I don't. Doesn't matter how limited it is. Just, just use what you have. And he says, "I'm with you, and I'll, 
I'll supply what is lacking in it. There's just so much. We're going to gloss over Gideon's story here, but I I really want you to go back and read 6 through 8 of Judges and just spend some time thinking about this this person, this simple person that God used in such an amazing way. You know, Gideon gets a confirmation from God that he's actually calling him and feels comfortable in God's patience with that, patient with that. And Gideon worships God. And then, and then God asks, him, and basically the call on Gideon is, I want you to deliver the entire nation from Midianites. So we're taking the least of the least and saying, I want you to lead the whole nation and I want you to deliver them. But the first action God asks him to take is a much more simple one. He basically says, I want you to rid yourself and your community of all the idols. For Gideon, that meant the people were partially under judgment from God because they had built altars to Baal and and Ashtoreth poles and they were worshiping pagan gods. And and the first thing he says to him is, go destroy those and build an altar to me and, and sacrifice to me as I have commanded you to do. And he does that. For us, you know, what's an idol? An idol is anything that gets in our way of doing what God wants us to do. Maybe it's our our demand to live a life with a certain level of entertainment. Maybe it's our demand to live a life with a certain level of of achievement and look. or, 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 Or maybe it's our inability to surrender our finances to Him and trust Him uh, to and his wisdom on how we should spend, how we should save, how we should not get into debt, how we should give. You know, maybe it's uh, surrendering our family to him. Maybe it's surrendering your career. What, what for you do you argue with God about saying, okay, the Bible seems fairly clear, but I just don't buy this. I don't think this is really you, God. More than likely, that's an idol that you're holding up. And the first step God asks him to do on the way to living the dream is to deal with those idols. And part of that is, is dealing with the image of himself as an idol. The Lord, the Lord said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And there's no evidence of him ever being a mighty warrior. There's evidence of him being absolutely everything to the contrary of that. And yet here's the reality of what God does when he speaks to us about our dreams. Sometimes he doesn't speak so much about the specifics of the dreams to us. Sometimes he just addresses the character, those small things that we've been doing all along in our life, those things that he looks at because he looks at the small things, those choices where we said, okay, God, I'm going to surrender this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or God, I'm going to trust you with this. Or or the decisions, the small decisions. And he speaks to that character. And it's really... The character in the small things, those times in between, those great times when God says, I want you to do this. Those decisions we make along the way, the the decisions that reflect the fact that we're trying to live life from an innocent, clear conscience. We're trying to commit both our dreams and the burden of success to Him. Those little decisions we make along the way, in between those big times, God speaks to us. God looks at those, and a lot of those times, those are the foundations for the dreams in our life. And without them, it's almost implied. How can we expect God to bless us if we're not going to surrender those idols, if we're not going to live life in the daily details of life with an innocent conscience trying to pursue him? Gideon's an amazing person because although overwhelmed by the dream of God for his life, overwhelmed and seeing entirely his weakness and his inability, He still is just a simple person who says, God, when you say it and confirm it, I'll do it. 
And Gideon simply followed the plan of God. He didn't make one up. He just waited for God to show him what the plan was. And the other thing that's interesting, I think, in, in this whole Gideon story that I think speaks to us today as well is that, that God is in the business of getting the glory himself. Think about it. I mean, God's the creator of us all. He's the only one capable of receiving glory. He's the only one who really, truly deserves glory because everything else is created by him. He's the only one who can handle the glory. And so sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves surprised when we feel like God calls us to something and we say, how could I ever do that? And yet God is in the business of doing that exact thing, of making us do something, giving us a dream that is so beyond ourselves that we can't even fi- figure out how to do it. So the story goes here that, that Gideon finally gets to the point where Midian comes with 135,000 soldiers to, to raid their farms and, and to try to defeat the army because they've heard that Israel's going to try to rebel. And, and Gideon shows up to meet these 135,000 people with 30, 32,000 men. Now get this picture. So, so Gideon probably has just got done talking to his army saying, okay, you can't die until you killed four people. And then God comes to him and says, um, you've got too many people. I want the glory for this. So he says, here's my recipe, Gideon. Send all the people who are afraid home. Well, duh. Wouldn't. Wouldn't anybody be afraid, numbered, outnumbered four to one? And God, wouldn't it seem more reasonable to bring out the pharmaceutical cart and give everybody anti-anxiety pills and, and throw a couple of steroid pills in for the good works? I mean, doesn't that make more sense? But, but no, just, just send the people who are afraid home and 22,000 people leave. So now it's 13 and a half to one odds. And God says, no. Still too many. So here's God's brilliant plan. Send them all down to the water. Have them drink. It's a hot day. Gideon, I want you to choose only the people who drink by dipping their hand in the water and bringing it up to their mouth and lapping like dogs. Now, this is a weird thought. I've wondered if some people ever use that for a biblical support for werewolves. You know, that's, sorry, that's random, that's strange. Throw it off the side. Um, so we've got the people who don't guzzle water on a hot day. So God is basically saying, take the people who are most prone to heat stroke, who are most prone to run out of, run out of gas because, they're, because they, they only drink a couple ounces at a time because it takes them so long to drink that way. And so he takes 300 men. And then, and then the plan even gets better because then he says, okay, Gideon, here's the plan. Take your 300 men and surround these 135,000 people. See, I don't know about you, but when I used to picture this growing up, I didn't think about the numbers. And I used to think, okay, well, 300 men with, with pots and jars and trumpets and, and torches at night, they could, they could seem pretty intimidating, you know. But 300 men surrounding 135,000, 135,000, i got to believe, take up maybe a square mile of space. So it's like you got 300 men and, and, and maybe, maybe I can shout to the guy next to me and he might hear me. But God performs a great deliverance, gives them a plan. The 10,000, who, uh, the 9,700 who stuck around after they were afraid, who went back to their tents, join them in the battle. And then a whole bunch of other people come out. And here's, here's one of the applications as well. 
Sometimes we get caught up in our dreams having to be something that originates with us. But the reality is the victory that day was a dream that all of the Israelite nation had in their hearts. God just spoke to one man. The dream that day was a dream that the 20,000 who went home had. It was a dream that the 9,700 had who went back to their tents. It was a dream that the people who came out afterwards to help mop up when the route was there had. It was a dream that the 300 people had. You know, the reality is sometimes the dreams for our lives come to us through the groups we're a part of or through leaders that we follow. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's, maybe it's the leader of your family. Or maybe, it's, maybe it's a leader of a community organization. Or maybe, it's, maybe, maybe your dream is, is associated with Quest because God's called you here. Sometimes we, we have a hard time dreaming because we, we don't realize that our dream can be the dream of other people as well. What can God do to bring His goodness to your family and your workplace? What can God do even though we're small in number, inadequate, under-resourced, what can God do to bring deliverance to people in our community? Trapped in shame and guilt and addiction and, and pain, not knowing the freedom of love of God and love of God. Solomon summarizes at least three attitudes and two habits, and you'll probably find more if you go through this on your own devotional way. And this is where we'll put them up on the screen. And if you're a writer and want to fill in the blanks, you can. Three attitudes. Live life making decisions with a clear conscience, an innocent conscience, while fully settling in your heart that you're really truly okay if you're wrong. That wrong decision has been made before you ever even get to some resistance. The second attitude, trusting the goodness of God to carry the burden of your dreams and guide your steps, regardless of the clarity or lack of clarity in those dreams, regardless of whether your dream that you have is in the right ballpark or not, trusting God to carry the burden and, and be a person who's determined to stay the course with God's dreams regardless of the resources and our abilities. Now that's the amazing part of Gideon. Not only was he the weakest, but then when God diminishes his army to that, he still stays the course. He stays the course even when it seems impossible. Until God gives a different dream, says something different, he stays the course. And the actions. Regularly schedule time to wallow and seek God's dream. But don't stay there. Act out of that clear conscience of what you believe God's dream and plans are. Whether you're sure of it or not, act. Take time to wallow. Take time to wait. Take time to dream God's dream. Take time to ask. But don't stay there. Act. Just do something with a clear conscience and see what God will do. And Gideon's story amplifies a, a kind of a third action that's not listed in your paper, simply examining our lives and getting rid of idols that stand in the way of God's dreams, not allowing anything in our life, not allowing shame, guilt, not allowing finances, not allowing work, not allowing dreams for family, not allowing our preferences and our desires for entertainment, not allowing anything to stand in the way of God's dream. And 
if you're here and got your communion cup, if there are ushers, if you didn't get one, hold your hand up. We're going to celebrate communion together. And the beautiful part of this is that Jesus came to show us exactly these same truths. To listen to God and act. He understands the fact that we don't always hear Him clearly. He understands the fact that we sin. He understands the fact that we're going to mess up. And He came to us to forgive us of that in advance, to make us His own, to be faithful to us, because that would remove any sin that we needed. And we can trust that goodness even in the way we make plans. So I want you to just take a few moments. This message has been kind of all over the place in some points. I'd like you to reflect for a few moments with communion and say, God, where, where have I allowed idols to hold me back? God, where have I sat because I lacked confidence and I should have just acted? What's holding me back, God, from you?